Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Politicians lie. (laughs) Now, they'll not admit to it. At best, they'll uh, phrase it like uh, Winston Churchill did. Uh, They are engaged in what he called terminological inexactitude. (laughs) But any way you measure it, it's a lie. Now, I know that's not news to you. And the point today is not do politicians lie, but do you lie? Now, before you say, oh, pastor, I'm not guilty of that, I want to take a moment, and I want you to voluntarily hook yourself up to a mental lie detector, okay? It's provided for you in the pew rack in front of you. (laughs) Get your lie detector out. Put it around your right arm, if you would. And I want you to answer eight questions to see how much of a truthful person you really are. Question number one, do you have a secret life you don't want others to discover? Number two, would you agree to answer any question your spouse asked you if you were hooked up to a real lie detector? Number three, do you often say things you don't mean for the sake of politeness? Number four, have you ever lied about your age, education, or income? Number five, would you tell a close friend that he or she had bad breath? Don't look at your neighbor right now. Number six, have you ever said, I love you, without meaning it? Number seven, do you love and respect your in-laws? Number eight, did you lie on this test? (laughs) How did you do? I imagine all of us realize we may be engaged in terminological inexactitude, or what the Bible calls lying, which is the subject of the ninth commandment we're looking at today in our series on the 10. Exodus 20, verse 16 says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is a very specific kind of lying that we're going to get to in just a moment. But first, let's look at what the Bible says about lying. You know, there's a connection between the sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth commandment. The sixth commandment involves taking something that doesn't belong to you. You shall not take your neighbor's life. The seventh commandment, you shall not take your neighbor's wife or husband. The eighth commandment, you shall not take your neighbor's goods. And this commandment, the ninth commandment, you shall not take your neighbor's good name. All four of these commandments involve taking something that really doesn't belong to you. And there's a relationship between murder, adultery, theft. They all involve taking something that doesn't belong to you. The Bible treats lying very seriously. We don't. We treat it flippantly. It's a part of everyday life. I think about the father that was taking his six-year-old son to the movie. Uh, The 
theater allowed children under the sick, age of six in free. And so the ticket taker looked at the boy and said, how are, old are you? And obeying his father's instructions, he answered, five. The ticket taker looked at him and said, and when do you turn six? The boy said, probably right after the movie is over. <laughs> now, we kind of treat that as harmless kind of lying, but the Bible takes it very seriously. If you really want to know what God says about lying, turn to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. Solomon said, there are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Now, that ought to cause our spiritual ears to perk up. Whenever the Bible said, here are seven things God hates, we better take note of them. What are they? Verse 17, haughty eyes, that is pride. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Will you notice that two out of these seven things involve lying and deception? God hates lying. Remember in our series on the book of Acts, we saw that the very first sin that God openly judged in the church was not blasphemy, it wasn't heresy, it wasn't adultery, it wasn't murder, it was lying. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? They wanted the praise of people for being generous, and so they sold a piece of land, and they swore to everybody they were going to give all the proceeds to the church, but they secretly held back some of it. And what happened when it was discovered? Acts 5.3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Verse 5, and as Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. That's a great understatement of the Bible. The church was terrified when they saw God and how he dealt with lying in the church. By the way, I've often thought Peter missed a great opportunity to take an offering here. <laughs> he could have passed the collection plate right then and had the highest offering in the history of the church. He didn't do that, but he did demonstrate how serious God takes lying. Now, some people say, well, if God's so serious about lying, doesn't the Bible commend lying? We all think about the story of Rahab, the prostitute. She's mentioned in Hebrews 11 as being a part of God's hall of faith. And yet, remember, she was a prostitute living in Jericho. She believed that God was going to give the city of Jericho to the Israelites that he has promised. And that's why when Joshua sent two spies to scope out the city before they attacked it, these spies found harbor and safety in Rahab's home. And when the king of Jericho heard about it, he sent word asking, Rahab, do you have two spies with you? She said, oh, no, they've already left when in fact they were there. Now, that's a case of lying. Why does God allow that and praise that? Well, you know from the Bible, God wasn't commending Rahab for her lying. He was commending her for her faith and believing that God was going to do what he has promised to do. Why does God hate lying so much? Why is this a commandment of the 10? And why is it that two of the seven uh, 
uh, on the list in Proverbs deal with lying. There are two reasons God hates lying. First of all, because of the origin of lying. Where does lying originate? Hint, not with God. James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, that is God, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. We talk today about people who shade the truth. There is no shading with God. He is light. There is no untruth in him at all. Titus 1-2 says very clearly, God cannot lie. Do you remember that little question people used to ask you when you were a child? It was a trick question. Is there anything God can't do? And we're supposed to say no. But then the question is, well, could he make a rock so heavy he couldn't lift it? I don't know the answer to that, but I do know the answer to this. There's one thing God cannot do. God cannot lie. On the other hand, Satan cannot not lie. He is the originator of lies in the universe. In John 8, Jesus describes Satan this way. Satan does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and he is the father of all lies. It is in Satan's nature to lie. And here's why God hates lying so much. When we as Christians lie, we are behaving more like children of Satan than we are children of God. The late theologian J.I. Packer says, there is no godliness without truthfulness. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 22. He uses the same image he does in the Colossians 3 passage we read. Lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. The imagery when he talks about lay aside and put on is of grave clothes. In Paul's day, in Jesus' day, you would take a corpse and before you put him in the sepulcher, you would wrap it in cloths, grave clothes. And those grave clothes, just like the body, would disintegrate. Those were grave clothes. Um, Paul said when we become a Christian, we die to our old self. We don't want to wear the garments of a dead, rotting corpse. That is, we don't want to engage in behavior that is a part of our old nature that was crucified on the cross of Christ. He says, lay aside your old behavior and put on new behavior. Put on new garments. Put on new clothing that is in keeping with the new person you are in Christ. Lay aside the old self, verse 24, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Therefore, lay aside falsehood. Speak truth instead, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. God hates lying because of its origin. It's in keeping with Satan, not with God. Secondly, he hates lying because of the outcome, the results of lying. Look at Proverbs 6, 19 again, that list of seven things God hates. Notice what he says in verse 19, a false witness who utters lies and who spreads strife among brothers. 
There's a relationship between lying and causing division among brothers, that is, among believers. I had a deacon in the first church I pastored. He never could quite get this verse quite right. Uh, the King James says, those who sow discord among the brethren, he would always talk about sowing discourse among the brethren. But we knew what he was trying to say. God hates division among Christians and lies further those division among Christians. Now, Paul is not saying that we shouldn't divide between non-Christians Speaking truth will always divide people, Christians from non-Christians. We're not to seek after some false unity that is built on lies. Christians are going to be divided from non-Christians when they speak truth. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 34 to 36? He said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but to bring a sword. When's the last time you saw that on a Christmas card? <laughs> but that's what Jesus said. He wasn't here to be Mr. Peacemaker, to bring peace to the whole world. No, he came to bring a sword, to divide people. That sword is the Word of God. Jesus is the living Word of God. And speaking Jesus' truth is going to cause division. Uh, Friday, a reporter from the Associated Press called me and said, what do you think of these pride events that are being conducted all around the country in order to bring unity among Americans? What do you think of those pride events? I said, do you really want to know what I think? He said, yes. I said, we should not be celebrating what God has condemned. God absolutely abhors anything that is contrary to his nature. Jesus said in Matthew 19, here is God's principle for sexual behavior. God created male and female, Matthew 19. He said, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God said, here's my design for sex. One man and one woman in a marriage relationship, and any deviation from that, transgenderism, homosexuality, adultery, incest, those are all violations of God's perfect standard. We should not be prideful of sin. We ought to be repenting from sin. That's a Christian stand on what's happening. So, that, trust me, when you speak that truth, you're going to divide people. That's okay. Jesus divided people. But what the Word of God is condemning here is division among Christians that are caused not by speaking the truth, but by speaking lies. I just want you to think about any Christian you have had a break in your relationship with. It might be a mate. It might be a friendship. It might be with a parent or a child. I imagine if there was a break in a relationship you've experienced, somewhere in that breakup was deception, lying. Lying divides people. And that's one reason God hates it, because it causes division among the brethren, among believers. Well, how do we lie? You know, just as there's more than one way to 
commit adultery. We saw there's more than one way to kill a person. There's also more than one way to lie. Now, the most obvious way we lie, first of all, is by contradicting the truth, by just saying something that is absolutely false in light of truth. Remember in Genesis 2, God told Adam, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Apparently, Adam passed that instruction to Eve because in Genesis 3, Satan, in the form of that serpent, slithered up into Eve's ear and said, what? You shall not surely die, Genesis 3, 4. That's a lie, contradicting what is absolutely true. And we do that. We do that for a variety of reasons. Sometimes we lie. We tell lies in order to seek revenge against people. Sometimes we do it to impress people. Some people, sometimes we do it uh, in order to keep from hurting somebody's feelings. We tell something that's just not true. Sometimes we lie because it's more convenient to lie. <laughs> I remember years ago preaching to my church about the subject of lying and different ways we lie. And so, on the way home from church, my daughters were in grade school at the time. I thought I'd try to impress the message upon them a little more. And so, I talked about different ways that we lie. And one of my daughters, who remained nameless, spoke up and she said, oh, dad, is that like when somebody calls our house and you tell mom to say you're not at home? But enough about me. <laughs> Contradicting the truth. Secondly, another way we lie is more subtle. It's twisting the truth. It's making sure we're not technically involved in telling a lie, but the truth is we're deceiving people. Calvin Miller, a great writer, tells about when he was in seminary, he had a part-time job at a factory at nights to make ends meet. And one night, he realized he couldn't go into work. He really needed to study for an exam, but he knew that would not be an acceptable excuse with his employer. So he asked his wife what they were having for dinner. She said, fish. He went in the bedroom, got flat on his back, and he told his wife, now bring the package of fish to me. So she brought the package of frozen fish to him, and while in the prone position, he threw that package of frozen fish into the air, caught it, and said, now, call my employer and tell him I'm flat on my back and I just threw up my dinner. <laughs> Technically, that was true, but it was a deception. And the same thing is true when we twist the truth to suit our own purpose. A third way we are involved in breaking the ninth commandment is by neglecting the truth. That is, allowing falsehoods to go unchallenged when we know the truth. That's the same as lying, Paul says. In Ephesians 4.25, he says, lay aside falsehood, speak truth to each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You know, Moses went on to elaborate on that in Leviticus 5.1. He said that if you're in a court of law, and if you are called to testify about something you have seen or know about, it is sinful to refuse to testify, and you will be punished for your sin. I remember years ago talking to a friend. We were talking about a staff member from another church who had recently left, and my friend said, I understand it was because of immorality. Well, I happen to know about the situation. I said, you know, that's not true. There was no immorality involved in it at all. This is why he left. Now, my friend could have remained silent. So, well, 
Okay, no big deal. But instead, he went the extra step. He called the person who gave him that wrong information and said, you know, I've just come upon some facts about that. That staff member was not involved in an immoral relationship. He felt he had a duty, which he did, to correct error by speaking the truth. Fourthly, inflating the truth. That's another way that we lie, inflating the truth, trying to make a good story or a situation sound better by embellishing it. I remember hearing about two pastors who went to a pastor's convention. They were standing in the hallway, and one said, how many are you running in your worship service every Sunday? The other pastor said, between four and 500. This pastor said, well, that's great. Later that next week, he received a bulletin from that church. He looked down at the attendance, and it said 87. So he called his friend. He said, you told me you were running between four and 500, and your attendance report says 87. And the pastor said, well... 87 is between 4 and 500. <laughs> now, that's what you call inflating the truth. And before you laugh too much, we've all done that before. Have you ever inflated your resume, perhaps by exaggerating your educational experience or your work experience? Have you ever exaggerated a relationship with somebody by saying, oh, he or she, they're great friends, when in fact you barely even know them? That's what you call inflating the truth. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Pastor, aren't you being kind of nitpicky about all of this stuff? I mean, after all, we're from Texas. We're known for creative embellishment. <laughs> Here's the problem. When we engage in that, it hurts our credibility because if people can't trust us in everything we say, how can they trust us in anything we say? Years ago, I was preaching a sermon, and I told a story, a personal story, that I will admit sounded improbable. But it actually happened, even though it sounded improbable. I was told later about a little boy at lunch who said to his dad, do you think that really happened to Pastor Jeffress? The father shook his head said, son, no, that's just preacher talk. <laughs> and when that story came back to me, I thought to myself, now what's that little boy going to think about other things I say? Is he going to write them off as preacher talk? That's why it's important that people learn to trust everything we say. James said it this way in James 5.12, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by oath or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. This verse isn't saying you never put your hand on a Bible and take an oath. That's not what it's saying. It's saying be such a person of truth that when you say yes or no, people automatically believe you. You don't have to say, I swear on a stack of Bibles or I swear on my children's lives or on my wife's life. You don't have to engage in all of that because you are a person of credibility. Look, you and I have been charged with sharing the most important truth in all the universe. It's Jesus' truth when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. We are to share that message with other people. And we need to be sure people trust what we're saying because we are credible people. God hates sinning because of its origin and its outcome. 
God says it's not just an outright lie, but it's any shade of the truth that counts as a lie. But I want you to notice a special category of lying that is the focus of the ninth commandment. Exodus 20, 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You are not to lie about another person. Why does he mention this as the sin that makes God's top ten? Two reasons. First of all, bearing false witness about another person perverts justice. It perverts justice. Now, stay with me on this. Remember, Israel was a theocracy. And that means these moral laws were not just moral laws. They were laws for how society was conducted. And two of these Ten Commandments had capital punishment assigned to breaking them. Adultery and murder. If you were guilty of breaking either of those commandments, you would lose your life. And so, it was very important that before somebody was executed, that reliable witnesses be consulted. And there were two safeguards to make sure that witnesses told the truth and didn't succumb to any outside pressure to declare an innocent person guilty or a guilty person innocent. What were those safeguards? First of all, there had to be a multiplicity of witnesses. You didn't put anybody to death on the basis of one witness. Deuteronomy 17.6 says, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. By the way, Paul took that principle and he applied it to the church in 1 Timothy 5.19. He said, do not accept an accusation against an elder, a pastor, except on the basis of two or three eyewitnesses. Now, I know that goes against our culture today. We're supposed to say, oh, one accuser is to always be believed. The accuser is to always, or the accuser uh, is always to be believed. No, the Bible says you don't always automatically believe every accuser. There needs to be evidence. There need to be witnesses. The same thing is true here. There need to be a multiplicity of witnesses. Now, here is the sa second safeguard in Deuteronomy 17, verse 7. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. If somebody was found guilty on the basis of two or three witnesses and was sentenced to be stoned to death, guess who got to throw the first stone? They were ordered to throw the first stone, those two or three witnesses. They were the ones who inflicted the death blow. In other words, you better be careful what you testify to because you're going to be the one to carry out the execution. And if you're lying in what you said, you're guilty not only of breaking the ninth commandment, you're guilty of breaking the commandment, you shall not murder. You're the one responsible for taking another life. God hates lying about other people because it perverts justice. But secondly, bearing false witness robs reputations. Look at Colossians 3.8. We read it earlier this morning. But now also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Circle that word slander. You know, to understand what he's saying when he's saying lay aside slander, you have to look at 
Slander's first cousin, gossip. Gossip in the Bible is the Greek, Greek word sisteris. Sisteris. It's what we call in English an onomatopoeia. It describes by its sound what it is defining. Sisteris, gossip. That's what a gossip does. He's always involved in secret communication. He doesn't want it traced back to him. He's whispering secretly accusations against another person. That's gossip. But the word here, slander, you know what that means? It means to strike out against. It means to openly judge another person. A person who commits slander doesn't even try to hide what he's doing. He is so sure he's right and the other person is wrong, he doesn't doesn't mind killing somebody's reputation. James has a word about that in James 4, 11 to 12. Do not speak against one another. Slander one another, brethren. For he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and the judges. Verse 12, for there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? What he is condemning is making a judgment about another person that you're not qualified to make. It means being so certain you're right and they're wrong that you serve as both judge, jury, and executioner of another person's reputation. It is a serious thing to do. The fact is, words we speak about somebody else, words that we use to destroy somebody's reputation can never be retrieved. When I think about that truth, I think about a man named Raymond Donovan. You may remember him. In the 1980s, he was the Secretary of Labor under President Ronald Reagan. He was accused of several crimes. He was indicted by a grand jury, but later he was acquitted of any wrongdoing. And I'll never forget watching the press conference he had after the acquittal came. Somebody asked him, Mr. Donovan, what are you going to do next? He answered, does anybody know what office I go to? to get my reputation back. There is no such office. Once you've lost your reputation, it is lost forever. The truth is, the most valuable thing any of us possesses is a good name. Proverbs 22 verse 1 says, a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. We live and we die with our name. And that's why it is so important that we take extra precautions to guard the reputation of others. How do we do that? By refusing to bear false witness against our neighbors. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. I've been talking very practically today to Christians but I want to talk to any of you here today, any of you watching who may not yet be a Christian. Satan is speaking lies to you right now to keep you from accepting the most important gift of all, the gift of God's forgiveness of eternal life. Perhaps he's whispering things to you like, oh, there's no heaven, there's no hell, no intelligent person believes that. This life is all there is. No. Jesus says there is a heaven and there is a hell. He spoke about both. 
Maybe Satan's saying to you, oh, even if there is a hell, you don't belong there. You're a good person. You may not be perfect, but you're good enough. Jesus said, no, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Today, I want to invite you to embrace the truth. God loves you. He's willing to forgive you if you're willing to ask. That's why Jesus came. That's why he died on the cross, in order to take the punishment we deserve. And today, if you would like to become a Christian and accept God's forgiveness in your life, I want to encourage you, wherever you are, to pray this prayer in your heart to God. As I prayed out loud, knowing that God's listening to you right now, would you pray this with me? Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know I have failed you in many ways, and I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard today. You loved me so much, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me, to take the punishment I deserve to take for my sins. And right now, I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me. Not in my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.